Welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot as she called us to live to a higher standard every day. To not be satisfied with just a little religion when we could give God our best. As the series continues in the coming weeks, we hear from family, friends, and others who are influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Today we continue our extended series about Operation Alka and other events during Elizabeth's time in Ecuador. We hear about the love story of Jim and Elizabeth as we listen to Gateway to Joy, but it's also sometimes a story of discouragement and quietness. Quietness sounds good, doesn't it? Sometimes we need a little of that in a busy, noisy world. Today we feature a couple of Elizabeth's friends, Kathy Gilbert, talking about what surprised her about Elizabeth, and also Margaret Ashmore, who will talk about Elizabeth's legacy. But right now, Gateway to Joy 107, entitled Quietness. Both of the Gateway to Joy programs that we feature today are from February of 1989. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliott, talking with you this time about something which is in very short supply these days, quietness. The book of Ecclesiastes says this, Better is a handful with quietness than two handfuls with labor. A different translation says, Better one hand full and peace of mind than both fists full and toil that is chasing the wind. Do you ever feel as though you're chasing the wind? Do you have each day of your life as much as one handful of quietness? If you don't, something is wrong. Something really needs to give. We live in a very noisy world. My husband and I live in a very, very quiet place compared to most people, I suppose, in this day and age. But every now and then we become acutely conscious of noise because we have so little of it. Sometimes there will be a workman on a house nearby with his ghetto blaster set at top decibel so that he can hear it on any of the four sides of the house where he may be working. Every now and then, we see fishermen down on the rocks, fishermen who don't want quietness. They don't want to listen just to the sound of the gulls and the waves. They want what's called music, and so they bring their radios and play them at top volume. The sunbathers do the same thing. Then, occasionally, there are chainsaws, helicopters, motorboats. You know what I mean. It's a very busy world, a very noisy world. There's busyness of all kinds, and this compulsion, almost obsession, to do something. What is there to do around here? I hear college students say, there's nothing to do around Gordon College. Gordon College is 30 miles from the nearest big city, and they say there's nothing to do. If you were to suggest that there's a wonderful library there and there's all sorts of riches to be found between the covers of those books, they would look at you as if you came from another planet. Housewives, do you have quietness? Do you have a chance to sit down and think? I don't want to lay a guilt trip on anybody. Remember that the Lord knows all about 
your obligations. He knows about the interruptions. He knows about the physical situation in which you live. Maybe it is absolutely impossible for you to get away to a place by yourself where you can be quiet for as much as 10 minutes a day. Perhaps God wants to teach you to learn to just be quiet in your spirit, even while you're peeling onions, doing the laundry, typing, sitting in a classroom in front of a class of students who are working on something at their desks. Just a few minutes in which you lift your heart and your mind up to God and go into a quiet place, an invisible place with him. They will be to your great prophet spiritually. We've been reading some selections from the biography of Jim Elliot called Shadow of the Almighty. When Jim graduated from college, he was asked the question that everybody is asked as they approach graduation and then as graduation takes place, what are you going to do? Where are you going next? And Jim had no answer that would satisfy his friends. It was an answer that didn't satisfy even some of his more spiritual friends because he was going home, back to spend a year with his parents, to be under the tutelage of his father, a very godly man, a Bible teacher and preacher. Then there was the possibility that his brother Bob was going to be building a house for himself and his wife, and Jim thought, well, perhaps when I go home, I'll be able to spend some time helping him with that project. He wrote, I feel sure that three months building would prepare me more for the mission field than another three months in the books. Most pressing is a sense of responsibility to the home, which has made me all I am and paid all the bills without a question. God knows best. He will not reveal his will by fires nor earthquakes, but by that quiet dwelling in his presence, which sons soon learn to interpret in their lives. Strange that we should be so slow to tame Brute flesh is rebellion incarnate within, and it takes some seasons of hammering and healing both to bring it into subjection. He went back home. He stayed there painting the house, fixing the car, running the vacuum cleaner for his mother, washing dishes, painting the meeting hall, learning to preach on street corners, visiting in prisons, sitting under his father's Bible teaching, sometimes hours at a time in the little breakfast nook in the kitchen. He said, I am being given the test of free time. How many of us can pass the test of free time? It's what a man does when he thinks nobody's looking that reveals his true character. True religion, as someone has said, is revealed in what you do with your spare time. Jim said, There are many burdens to be lifted as I choose the path of sacrifice here at home. It wasn't a great sacrifice. Jim didn't mean to dramatize it. But there aren't very many 21-year-olds who think about their obligations to the home that has made them what they are and would dream of giving the following year to going home and just helping mom with the vacuuming helping Dad paint the house or fix the car. There's an old hymn by John Keeble. The trivial round, the common task, will furnish all we ought to ask, room to deny ourselves, a road to bring us daily nearer God. 
Jim was learning to make even the vacuuming of the living room an offering to the Lord, his master. In between times, he was filling his mind with Christian biographies. He was greatly moved and challenged by the biography of David Brainerd, another young man who died at a very early age. He was a missionary to the Indians of New Jersey, and I think he died at the age of about 28, engaged but never having been married. He was reading Hudson Taylor, John G. Payton of the South Seas, Jonathan Goforth of China. And he wrote about the value of his notations on these books. October 27th, his diary entry says this, enjoyed much sweetness, as he puts it, in the reading of the last months of Brainerd's life. How consonant are his thoughts to my own regarding the true and false religion of this late day. Saw in reading him the value of these notations and was much encouraged to think of a life of godliness in the light of an early death. Interesting that back in 1950, Jim was thinking about an early death. Then two days later, October 29th, he says, On reading a letter to Bert from Wilfred Tidmarsh, I responded to a simple urge to offer myself for the work there in Ecuador. This morning it struck me as quite presumptuous action, and I covenanted with the Lord quietly that I would not post the letter unless I had some definite word from himself. It seems the situation he is in demands that he abandon the Indian work among the Quichuas because of his wife's health. So he was beginning to narrow down his call, not just to Latin America, but now to Ecuador. And so he felt this simple urge to offer himself for the work. But that call came out of silence. He was able to hear the still small voice because he had arranged to be quiet. There's no way in this noisy, busy world that we can be quiet without arranging for that. It's not something that's going to happen automatically. You must arrange to withdraw and to be quiet. But my friends won't understand. My family won't understand, you say. Well, if you keep an engagement book, why not just put it in the book? Set aside a couple of hours. Set aside an evening. And if you receive an invitation for that evening, you can honestly say, sorry, that evening is booked. That's honest. You don't need to explain yourself, to defend yourself, or make excuses. Put it on your calendar. Jim was criticized, predictably, for having chosen this way of life with all his gifts Did it make sense? Sometimes he was angry at the things people said. Sometimes he strongly felt that he needed to rise up and retaliate by justifying himself, telling them of his application for three jobs, of his prospect of going perhaps to British Guiana for a summer's work, of Bible studies, reading, work, keeping up the place. But he said, The word of the Lord Jesus came to me, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men. Not wanting to be found such, I knelt to pray and read the noon psalm for today. It was number 17, verse 2 smote me. Let my sentence come forth from thy presence. Thou hast tried me. My steps have held fast to thy paths. Deliver my soul from men who are thy hand, from men of this world whose portion is in this life. They are satisfied with children, but I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy form. 
So, Lord, I'm in thy hand and say now in faith that thou hast led, searched, exercised, and tried me. If there lacks now that which I should be doing and am not, hide it not from thy servant who would follow thee. Quietness is needed if we're going to learn to hear the still, small voice of God. From 1989, that was simply entitled Quietness. Later, our program is on discouragement. But let's take a break and hear from Kathy Gilbert, friend of Elizabeth Elliot. She tells us what surprised her about Elizabeth. How funny and fun she was. She had such a dry sense of humor. For example, her teaching on women in missions, she read this sappy description of single women missionaries and then with a straight face said, that was written by a man and you should have heard the audience go wild. They love her. Now, another surprising thing about Elizabeth, when she and Lars would travel, and of course, if you know her, you know that they traveled constantly, between the two of them, they would carry one carry-on suitcase. Isn't that amazing that the, that woman could travel so light and share a little suitcase, a carry-on suitcase with her husband? Unfortunately, not me. I got to visit her in her home. And she lived in Magnolia, Massachusetts, right on the coast, and it's beautiful. And we took a walk around her neighborhood and along the coast. And I, as I'm walking through her beautiful town of Magnolia, I'm looking around. I'm just exclaiming oohs and ahs at all the beauty. But what was Elizabeth doing? Elizabeth was looking down in the weeds, rummaging for bottles to recycle because she brought her plastic bag and she did find bottles to recycle. But another amazing thing about that time I got to visit her, I would be downstairs puttering around, looking, reading some books, but then I decided I wanted to go upstairs and visit her in her office. And what I'm amazed at now, I didn't realize it then what she was doing, but she would put down whatever she was doing to talk. And what a challenge that must have been. Elizabeth is very uh, disciplined, structured. She had her um, routine in the morning and an she had so much mail and um, things to write and respond to, and a lot of time was taken up with that. But for her just to put down whatever she was doing to talk um, taught me, as she always would say, but now she practiced it, to look at interruptions as from Jesus. And this woman practiced what she preached. Kathy Gilbert, known affectionately as Elizabeth's hippie friend, also, Margaret Ashmore will join us, a speaker and artist. She'll be talking about the legacy of Elizabeth Elliot, her friend. First, though, a look at discouragement. You know, people can ask some strange questions and have some strange ideas when it comes to Christian leaders. What about that spiritual high that you're always on? Maybe they'd readily admit that things aren't that way. Hear about what Jim wrote when he was in low points, like you and I have. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you this time about discouragement. You know, people ask strange questions of people like me. If you write a book or you stand up in front of an audience and talk about things, people get weird ideas about the fact that you must be in some sort of a special category 
I've had people actually be surprised to find out that I go to grocery stores and wash dishes. I'm not quite sure what sort of a image they have of me, but one of the funnier questions that has been asked of me recently was, how do you keep on a spiritual high? Well, I wish I knew the answer to that question. I'm not sure whether I actually laughed at the person who asked it or not. I probably tried to control my amusement, but I don't maintain spiritual highs. In fact, I think I told the person I wasn't sure I'd ever been on one. Spiritual highs. What does this mean exactly? Some kind of a mountaintop experience like the Transfiguration when Peter got on such a spiritual high that he thought it would be nice to stay there and build three tabernacles? Well, we've been looking at the life of Jim Elliot, his preparation for the mission field, and there are many ups and downs which come out clearly in his diaries and letters, and yet there are people who read his diaries and letters and come up with the conclusion that Jim was some kind of a plaster saint. He wasn't human. He was impossible. I've had people say to me, was this guy for real? I mean, was he really that spiritual? Well, Jim Elliot was often in near despair. Listen to this. What good are Greek commentaries, insight, gift, and all the rest if there is no heart for Christ? Oh, what slackness I feel in me now. Wasted half a day was to have spoken in chapel again at the Christian high school, but because of snow, school was closed. Good thing I had nothing to say to the kids anyhow. A few days later, he writes, Difficulty in getting anything at all from the word. No fervency in prayer, disturbance in the house, cold weather and occasional headaches have made spiritual things less precious this whole week. I find I must drive myself to study following the ought of conscience to gain anything at all from the scripture, lacking any desire at times. It's important to learn respect and obedience to the inner must if godliness is to be a state of soul with me. I may no longer depend on pleasant impulses to bring me before the Lord. I must rather respond to principles I know to be right, whether I feel them to be enjoyable or not. America is obsessed with success, with size, with frantic activity, degrees, seminars, resumes, summer programs, qualifications, courses. Bigness in itself is considered admirable in the climate in which we live. Well, Jim Elliott and Ed McCulley went to practice missionary work in a small town in southern Illinois called Cairo. They were going to start a church, start at work for kids, do a radio program. Well, they did the radio program. They had a little Bible class for kids. I don't think they succeeded in starting a church. They were only there for slightly under a year. But they didn't see very much in the way of results of the effort that they put into that Bible class and that radio program. They didn't get floods of mail from the listeners. And they felt very discouraged there were times when Jim just felt like taking a raft and going down the Mississippi River. This was what he wrote. Looking over the last two years since graduation gives me a funny sense of uselessness. The way for me has certainly not been conventional or predictable in any way. But I have sought the will of God, and in this I rest. 
It's no use arguing what might have been if so-and-so had happened. We're only asked to do what we are told, small, strange, or simple as that may be. Our orders are to obey, and in this my conscience is clear. I've walked in integrity, not purposing according to the flesh, that my path should be yea, yea, and nay, nay. But having purposed in Christ to do what is pleasing to him, I find his approval and seal in the very smallest and unlikely things. Especially is this true of these months here in Chester. Chester was a little town near Cairo. Who shall doubt or say that our labor is in vain? Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph. I remember hearing the story of a preacher who came home extremely discouraged one night, saying that there were only two people at church. It was a wild night of storm and wind and rain. And he preached his heart out for those two people. But he came home very depressed and disconsolate and told his wife the story. What that man could never have imagined was what God was going to do through one of those two people, a child, a boy named David Livingston. We never have any idea what the ripple effects of our obedience to God may be. The five men who went in to take the gospel to the Alka Indians in Ecuador, they would never in a million years have imagined that their simple obedience that particular day when they left behind their wives and children and their mission stations and went down to the sand strip on the Kodadai River could ever have a ripple effect around the world. Perhaps I'm speaking to someone today who is discouraged, feeling anything but a success. Something you have put heart and soul into has come to nothing. You have failed miserably, failed in your job, failed your wife, failed your children, failed the people who look up to you. You have not done what they expected you to do. You know, God knows how to restore even the years that the locust has eaten. Remember Jesus' words, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. And faithfulness entails a lot of repentance, a lot of saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. None of us is faithful consistently, perfectly, unremittingly. I've just read an excellent book called Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome by Kent Hughes. Kent and Barbara are friends of mine, and they wrote this book together, telling of how when he had a church in Southern California, things were going along relatively well, when the attendance began to fall off. When attendance fell off, Kent's confidence began to disintegrate too. And finally he came home one evening, sat down in tremendous discouragement, and said to Barbara, It's all over. I can't do it. I was never cut out for this. I'm a failure. I wonder if God called me into the ministry. He had his doubts not only about his call, but he began to feel resentful because God was not coming through the way he wanted him to. He said, what am I going to do? 
And Barbara said, Kent, I don't know what you're going to do, but you must hang on to my faith because I've got enough faith for both of us. And God gave her the verse, Psalm 37, verse 24. Though he fall, he will not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Barbara hung on to that, and Kent hung on to Barbara. And God delivered them, liberated them from the success syndrome, and showed them that it is not success that God is asking for, it's faithfulness. Discouragement is one of the devil's master strokes. And remember that we're in a spiritual warfare. This is not a fight to be waged with ordinary weapons. Our fight is not against any physical enemy, Paul wrote to the Ephesians. It is against organizations and powers that are spiritual. We are up against the unseen power that controls this dark world and spiritual agents from the very headquarters of evil. Therefore, you must wear the whole armor of God that you may be able to resist evil in the day of power and that even when you have fought to a standstill, you may still stand your ground. He speaks of fiery darts from the evil one. Discouragement is one of those fiery darts. The sense of inadequacy the feeling of guilt that you're not meeting expectations. And my husband Lars could tell you that if I have one recurring dream, it's of the failure to meet people's expectations. I dreamed one time of opening the oven to take out the Thanksgiving turkey. Twenty people or so were sitting at a beautifully decorated table on which all the other food was already put. Everything was great till I opened the oven and I found the skeleton of a turkey in there. Well, that's... Uh, significant, I'm sure. It's illustrative of the deep, pervading sense of failure to live up to people's expectations. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever had this kind of discouragement? We don't live on spiritual highs. It's at such a time when we feel as though all is lost that we can will to trust God. The psalmist said, what time I am afraid. I will trust in thee. Originally aired in February of 1989, that program was simply entitled Discouragement. Margaret Ashmore has a minute or so, and we're going to have her talk about Elizabeth's legacy. Margaret was a good friend and traveling companion at times with Elizabeth. She's a speaker and artist as well. What does Margaret see as the legacy? that Elizabeth left? Hmm, well, of course, we find her legacy in the almost 50 books she left for us to read, as well as the countless audios of her conference talks. But if I were to be specific, I would once again go back to Calvary. Elizabeth understood that dying to self, not finding ourselves, not trying to fix ourselves, not focusing on ourselves, and certainly not loving ourselves was the key to our freedom and real joy. C.S. Lewis, at the end of his classic work on the Christian life, Mere Christianity, said this, 
but there must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. The very first step is to forget about yourself altogether. Your real new self will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Elizabeth lived this. She taught this. She heralded this. Her legacy is found in the thousands of changed lives that are no longer letting the light of Christ be eclipsed by self-importance. That was friend of Elizabeth, Margaret Ashmore. Well, we're just about out of time for today. But let me thank you for letting us come into your home, your office, maybe out jogging wherever we found you today. And on behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out all of the resources at elizabethelliot.org. Elizabeth with an S, elizabethelliot.org. And until next time, may God remind you daily that you are loved with an everlasting love. Underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>